Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I wonder what it was like for Joseph in the pit. He had this dream, right? He had this dream where he realized, or he had a, 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 this kind of sovereign, divine interaction where he was supposed to be transcendent over and above his brothers. So he had this first dream that was about these sheaves, and he realized that everyone else's sheaves would bow down to him. And then he had this dream about stars, and so sure enough, the other stars would bow down to him. Joseph, in this dream, is realizing that God will bring him transcendence over and above his brothers. And like good brothers do, they don't like it. And they throw him into a pit. Later, they change their mind, take him out of the pit, and they sell him into slavery. Joseph ends up in Egypt while his 10 brothers go home. You have to wonder what he's thinking in that pit. See, there are times when we find ourselves in the pit, as it were, where our station in life is not what we would choose for ourselves. Often, when we get into that situation, that difficulty, that circumstance, we feel powerless. uh, There are health concerns beyond our control or family relationships that are broken. There's work or school difficulties, and we cannot do a single thing to change it. It's not about our negligence in a particular area or our sinfulness in a particular area. It has to do with just our difficulty that life has brought to us. Some of us are in a different spot. We have wrought certain situations in our own life, and we face the difficulties of our situations, bad choices that we've made in our past, wrong decisions that we've performed, and now we're reaping what we've sown in some way. Even though repentance has come, even though confession has come, we're still stuck beneath the consequences of those sins and those wrongs. See, sometimes. God, in his sovereign wisdom, sees fit to place us under the weight of his heavy hand to make us realize our need of grace and mercy. Isn't that what happens in Genesis 2 and 3? Adam and Eve are tempted in the garden, and the snake is saying, hey, uh, if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so sure enough, Eve takes it and she passes it on to her husband, and the rest is history, right? God brings these curses upon Adam and Eve to show them, you need me. You cannot exist apart from me. So I wonder this morning if Psalm 80 is going to invite us into a similar reflection. And here's what I think Psalm 80 is trying to get at this morning, is that our tears do God's work when they leave us longing to see Jesus' face. Our tears, our hardships, our circumstances are doing what the Lord intended when they leave us longing for more of Christ. 
There's a kind of a structure here that I want to highlight this morning. If you have a Bible, I'm going to just ask you to open it to Psalm 80. If you have a a cell phone with a Bible thing, I want to see the the Shekinah glory light on your face, right? I just want to highlight just something that's happening here in this Psalm. We're going to break it up in three different ways. In verses 1 through 3, Asaph is going to ask the Lord to hear and to restore. And so that's what we're going to see in verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 through 7, Asaph asks the Lord to relent of his affliction of Israel. And then in verses 8 through 18, 8 through 19, Asaph asks God to strengthen Israel again. Now, as we look at our text, I just want to highlight that verses 3 and 7 and 19 all say the same thing, right? Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. What happens is that Asaph, the psalmist, is going to give us a little bit of a description in verses 1 through 3, and then he's going to plumb a little bit deeper in verses 4 through 7, and then in verses 8 through 19, he's going to open up the stores and show us exactly what's happening. Now, I said that it's the exact same phrase in verses 3 and 7 and 19. That's not quite true. Because what you see is that the name of God expands. Look at verse 3. Restore us, O God. Verse 7 says, restore us, O God of hosts. And verse 19 says, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. The reflection here this morning is that the deeper the psalmist presses into his problems, the bigger his view of God needs to be. With that in mind, we want to dive in into verses 1 through 3. We can ask God for help. Asaph, ask God to hear and restore his people. Listen to what he says. He says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Bring forth Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. See, Asaph begins with this plea to God. Now, just notice kind of the verbs, the statements that are made here in verses 1 and 2. He calls God to give ear, to listen. He calls him to shine forth, to stir up, to save. I don't imagine many of our prayers sound so desperate as this. Our prayers often sound like we're about to have tea and crumpets with the Queen of England. Oh, Lord, we beseech thee. Nobody prays like that. Okay, get it. But we don't pray desperately, do we? Notice the desperation in the psalmist's voice. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Notice specifically, he refers to the shepherd of Israel. And that phrase is similar to what's used in Genesis chapter 49, where we're talking about uh, Jacob's blessing on Joseph. See, Asaph taps into this prediction here that he's calling on God to save like he did with Joseph. Not only that, he, he talks about these three guys, Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Now, who are these guys, right? Now, it's interesting to note that that these are three of the fathers of the tribes of Israel. So you have 12 sons of Israel. You have 12 tribes of Israel. Two of these are sons of Joseph, and one of these is a son directly of Jacob. Now, what happens when they divide up the camp? We're in Exodus, and this is going to happen in the Pentateuch. When they divide up the camp, if you look on the left side of your screen here, you'll see that Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin are all on the same side of the camp, right? They're kind of lumped together. 
But that commonality doesn't just stop there. See, what happens is that as we look back on what their stories are, Ephraim and Manasseh were born in this foreign land in Egypt. And when they're born in Genesis, I think it's 46, Joseph says they were born amidst my affliction. They were born amidst my struggle. Benjamin is born as his mother is dying. All three of these names are just tied to suffering and difficulty. Suffering is this common theme amongst them. And I think our psalmist Asaph knows that it just kind of brings that up in the minds of these Israelites, that these three names are tied to suffering historically. What happens in verse 3 is the nature of their prayer, right? Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And again, this is the first of these three repeats in verses 3 and 7 and 19. And what this kind of prayer is calling for is this restoration. And we have a lot of shows about restoration now, right? You, you uh, see a show and somebody's driving down the road and they see this piece of garbage, right? I mean, it's literally a piece of garbage that looks like it should be thrown into a landfill somewhere. And sure enough, they pick it up and they restore it and then they sell it for half a million dollars. That's how it goes. You know, if only I had the skill set to do that. See, this is what the psalmist is talking about. He's talking about restoration. Now, one of the things he says is he, he says, uh, let your face shine. What does God's face have to do with this concept of restoration? See, in the Old Testament, time and time again, the, the, speaking of someone's face was talking about their presence. And so uh, Asaph is calling upon God to restore his presence with Israel so that they might be fully restored, so that God would be with them as he was uniquely with them in the past, and he might restore them and bring them back to what they formerly were. There's this part of Joseph's life, right? Where Joseph, it doesn't just, he gets sold into slavery, and then it gets worse. He's falsely accused, and he's thrown into prison. And then they forget him in prison. One of the things that happens is he meets this baker and cupbearer to the king. He meets these two highly important people. And sure enough, both of these people have dreams that they can't interpret. And and so... Joseph kind of steps in. You can almost imagine him stepping out of the shadows of his cell, and he's saying, hey, I can interpret your dreams. Listen to what he says in Genesis chapter 40, verse 8. He said, uh, they said to him, we had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. See, in the midst of this, it's understanding that Joseph has is that if there's hardship, if there's something, a riddle to be solved, it's for the Lord. See, if struggles arise, God is the one who holds the answers. You and I tend to do this thing, don't we? We look for answers with our, in our own power, right? We think that we have enough kind of wherewithal and knowledge to solve our own issues. I love when I, I watch sports and an athlete will get done with a loss, and they'll come to the, the microphone, and they'll talk about, hey, what, what do you think happened? And the athlete will say, well, we just need to get better. Well, duh, yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that bit of wisdom you just gave me. But here's the question, like, what if you can't get better? What if it's not possible for you to get any better? 
What if our problem is legitimately bigger than ourselves? See, the truth is this morning that only God can save us from life's most pressing issues. If we try to save ourselves from death, we'll fail, right? There's no one, whoever walked to the face of the earth, who's able to escape their own death. In the same way, if we kind of try to escape our own sinfulness, we'll fail. We'll not be able to escape, escape our own wrongdoing. Seeking to save yourself from sin is like trying to drink yourself into sobriety or fornicate your way into virginity or spend your way into savings. See, self-reliance is the essence of sin. That's what Paul says in Romans 14. He says, uh, you know, anything that's not of faith is sin. When we rely upon ourselves, when we act in lawlessness, like 1 John 3 says, that's what sin is. It's the heartbeat of Genesis 3 that we talked about. Uh, the Satan, Satan is coming to Adam and Eve saying, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Every time we try to save ourselves, we just fall into another kind of death. Our difficulties show us our need of a solution outside of ourselves. See, this morning, if if we have problems, the solution is to seek God's shining face. I don't just mean that as some kind of vague spiritualism this morning. I genuinely think that that's true. I genuinely believe that all of our problems find their solution in seeking Christ. Now, hear me clearly. That doesn't mean that your circumstances are going to change. What it means is that you're going to find a greater joy in the midst of your hard circumstances. You're going to replace the thing that you formerly had joy in with a new joy in Christ. In fact, this is what the psalmist has to say next in Psalm chapter 80 or Psalm 80 verses 4 through 7. So we can ask God to relent of his afflicting. Asaph asks God to relent of his affliction of Israel. Look at verses 4 through 7. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. How long is God going to be angry? That's Asaph's question. God, specifically, according to Asaph, is angry with their prayers. That's the the feeling he gets as he has prayed continually before God. God, save us, save us, save us. And Asaph is finding that his prayer is not being answered. And so he determines that God is not hearing, that he's angry with his prayers. Now look at what verses 5 and 6 show us, that There's a specific kind of emotionality about this. He says, you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. Some of us know exactly what he's talking about, don't we? We know what it's like to not want to eat, to have such pain and difficulty and suffering that the only thing you've got is tears. There's an emotional turmoil there in verse 5, and verse 6 gives us the cause. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh amongst themselves. It's the cause of this emotion, this turmoil. It is the shame of the nation of Israel. 
the picture seems to be of this national shame. Asaph is calling out to God for this restoration because God has brought in particular shame to them. Notice, though, in these verses, who Asaph is crediting for this difficulty. Four times in these verses, we see the pronoun you speaking to God. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemy laugh amongst themselves. Who is the author of this hardship? This is the Lord. Asaph sees God as the actor, the cause of Israel's difficulty. Asaph doesn't see the surrounding nations as the cause. He's looking past kind of the instrument of that cause and seeing the one who's actually wielding those nations. If you are familiar with the story of Joseph, when Joseph gets to the end of Genesis 50, his, his father has died, and his brothers are thinking, Joseph is now going to get his return on his anger. Joseph is going to come back and get retribution. And so they come down, and they fall on their faces in Genesis 50, 18, and they say, we are your servants. Joseph, we're your slaves. Just don't, just don't take care of us. Just don't kill us. Don't uh, do something cruel to us. Joseph turns around and replies, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph looks beyond the instrument of his brothers, and he sees the God that has wielded this circumstance for his glory. See, Joseph saw that his difficulty was wrought by God's good and mighty hand. He saw beyond the circumstance, and he saw the God who was working in that circumstance, the providence that God had worked in his midst. See, if struggles arise, not only is God the, 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 the one that we should go to, the one who holds the answer, God is also the author. Well, we just noted that God has power to save us, but it's also worth noting that God alone has the knowledge to save us. Let's just have a little thought experiment here this morning. Let's just imagine that we figure out how you can live forever. Let's just imagine that that's true. Let's also imagine that you have a magic time machine and can go anywhere in time and space in history. So you can live forever and go to any time period you want. Now, some of us are going to waste it. We're going to go to every sports event that we ever thought we wanted to go to, right? But let me just ask you, with that scenario, could you, call, could you cure cancer? Could you stop war? Could you heal any of humanity's problems? I don't think you could. See, the problem is not the shortness or brevity of our life. The problem is our knowledge. Even if you and I were to travel back and forth and figure out all of the things about science and politics and everything else, we would forget more than we remembered. See, too often we assume that our limited time and limited resources is what stops us from fixing our world. But what if we're more limited in our knowledge? I read an article this week that said one-third of all scientific papers were false. 
one third of scientific papers were fraudulent. And I wondered, is this fraudulent? Like, we have a knowledge problem, don't we? We have a knowledge problem right now. We have all this kind of news sources just feeding us with information time and time again, giving us kind of the insider access and and telling us and all of these things. We have a knowledge problem, even though in our fingertips we have access to all of the world's knowing. We still have a knowledge problem. And I would even argue that it's more significant than it was 20 years ago. It's worth noting that when when Job wanted to question God's goodness, do you remember that in the book of Job? Job loses his family, and he's struck with disease and sickness, and there he is on the ash heap, and he's claiming, God, where was God? What's God? Is God good? And God shows up after 38 chapters and starts asking Job questions. Where were you when I formed the earth? How did I set it up? Do you understand weather patterns? We have a knowledge problem. See, God uses Job's lack of knowledge to highlight his full and utter knowledge. But God sees the whole picture, doesn't he? Jesus tells us that that a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without God knowing. Jesus tells us that he has numbered every hair on our head, which is more of a problem for us than some others, right? God has this thorough, full knowledge. We have a dog, and our dog sits in the front window, and she barks at whatever comes around, right? There's a dog that walks by that's like literally 10 times her size, and she's barking like she wants to fight that dog. She sits there. She's absolutely convinced that she's limited, that if we just let her out, she would be able to take that thing down, right? Like us, we are absolutely convinced that if God would just change our circumstance, everything would be right and okay. Truthfully, we're in the safest place. Scriptures tell us that God orients the world as he wants. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that pleases him. Romans chapter 8, God works all things to good. The scriptures unashamedly show us a world that is unquestionably ruled by a completely sovereign God. Asaph is is right to see God's hand behind Israel's struggles, and he's right to look and say, Lord, I need you to save. Both of those things are good, right understandings. What's really interesting is when we get to verses 8 through 19, The solution that Asaph sets forth has more meaning than he would even understand. He starts off in verses 8 through 13. Look what he says. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branch to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls? so that all who pass along uh, the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. See, Asaph gives this history by an analogy, and he's talking about this vine that God has planted. By the way, this is pretty uh, significant throughout the Scriptures. In Isaiah 5, Isaiah will pick up on this same metaphor and use it as a critique of the nation of Israel. In John 15, Jesus will say, I'm the true vine. I'm the true Israel. I'm the one who actually does what God wanted me to do. And when you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. 
But what he does is he gives this analogy and he's saying, hey, look at our history, right? God took us out of Egypt in verse 8. He he drove out the surrounding nations again in verse 8. He allowed it to kind of take root, that is to be established with the good rulers of judges and kings that were to come along. And Israel's thriving in verses 10 through 11, so that it's a nation of just this global importance. The vine covers the whole mountain. Remember the story of Solomon. Solomon is this great king. He sends out ships. He's bringing cedars from Lebanon. He's doing all of these things that are globally oriented because of God's favor. What happens in verses 12 through 13 is there is a significant shift in tone. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? Again, in verse 13, the boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Why did you tear down the barrier? Why did you expose Israel to all of these foreign armies? Why have all of these horrible things happened to us? So in verses 14 through 19, Asaph calls for strengthening. Look at verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. And for the son whom you made strong for yourself, they have burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we might be saved. There's something structurally happening here, and I just want to highlight this. There's what we call a chiasm, which is a big word that means it looks like an X or one side of an X. And the top and bottom phrases match one another, right? So in verse 14, there's a call for God to turn. And in verse 18, Asaph's assurance that they will not turn back. And uh, verses 14 and 15 match verse 17 that uh, they call for this son of man to be strengthened. And then verse 16 kind of stands off as this call for those who cut down the vine to perish. And what this does is it shows us some of the key themes of what's happening. First, there's this call to turn. God, turn, relent. Turn back to your people, Israel. And then there's this call for them to restore the Son of Man. As Asaph is speaking, he's thinking about Israel, God's Son. We saw this in Exodus chapter 3, right? This is my firstborn son. And then a call for the destruction of those who have violated Israel in verse 16. And then uh, so on and so forth in verses 17 and 18. See, what Asaph's plan is, is that God will again initiate contact with his people, Israel, that he will restore them. Now look at particularly what his plan for that restoration is. Look at verse 15. He says, the stock that your right hand planted and for the son uh, whom you made strong for yourself. Or look at verse 17. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. What is Asaph's plan? What does Asaph want to see? He wants to see the restoration of this nation, Israel. Make them strong again, Lord. Make them strong. But when we read this passage with New Testament eyes, we're seeing something different. We're seeing a different son of man that's coming to our minds. How is God going to restore this nation? Is it going to be through the power and might of the nation of Israel? No. It's going to be through one man. One man who stood up to the spiritual authorities. One man who was 
brought before person Pilate in Jerusalem. One man who seemingly was defeated. One man who went into a grave. One man who came out three days later victorious over sin and death. This is how God will rebuild his nation through his son, Jesus Christ. It's worth noting that when Joseph is in his life, and he comes to this statement with his brothers, you intended for evil, God meant for good. He goes on in this statement, and I didn't read the full phrase for you, but in Genesis chapter 50, he goes on, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, Joseph goes through suffering, 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 difficulty after difficulty so that he might be raised up and save his brothers. Son of man suffers, suffers. to raised up to save his brothers. See, remembered, we've seen that when struggles arise, God alone holds the answer. When struggles arise, God is the author. When struggles arise, God alone is the Savior. He alone raises up His righteous Son. He alone has victory over sin and death. He alone brings righteousness to the unrighteous, makes sinners into saints. There's something else here in our passage that I think points us to Christ. Now notice the refrain that that this psalmist keeps saying. He says, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we might be saved. Verse 7, restore us, O God, hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Verse 19, restore us, O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. What is this whole idea of face? Moses comes down from the mountain in Exodus, Numbers, excuse me. And he gives this blessing to the sons of Aaron. I just want to read this, Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face, his countenance upon you and give you peace so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. This blessing that Moses gives to Aaron, his brother, and to the priesthood, it has to do with the face of God. Paul picks up on this in in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has shown us his glory in his son, Jesus. The Asaph says it in verse 17, let your hand be on the man of your right hand. Bless this son. It was in seeing Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection, we get the surest sense of God's restoring work. When God wants to restore someone, he doesn't just strengthen them. He sends his son to die in their stead. See, Jesus is the shining of God's face upon his people. God 
answers Asaph's prayer in a different way than we might have anticipated. Asaph wants this restoration of the nation, and God sends a man to suffer, die, and be raised. I wonder this morning if we might see in this passage that God is sovereign to bring about the initiation of our circumstances, of our sufferings, and he's sovereign to save us from them. And at the end of all of our griefs is the point of our salvation. That Jesus has brought the end of our sorrows and our sufferings. Isaiah 53 is this statement all about the substitutionary work of Jesus' death, right? It's, you know, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And we might pass by this little phrase that's buried in there in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and shared or carried our sorrows. See, when God sent Jesus to the cross, he addressed our greatest need. He took away fear and guilt and shame, and he buried them in a tomb with his own son so that when Jesus had victory over all our sin, he buried these worries. He buried these concerns. And at the end of the day, nothing can strip my eternity from me, Christ. Not the truth. See, the truth is this one, that God is all about this concept of restoration. I remember hearing a story some years ago, a, a pastor by the name of Joe Stoll had shared this illustration, and he found out that there was this uh, man, Stradivarius, and Stradivarius would make these violins. They're priceless. But Stradivarius was a peasant. He was poor. So where do you get wood to make violins when you're poor? You find it, Right? Particularly, Stradivarius would go and he would pick up driftwood, something that had been in a lake or stream somewhere, and he would take it home and carve it into these instruments. This person was telling Stoll that that's what actually gave the Stradivarius sound, such a unique and beautiful sound, is that this, was, this wood was kind of a different kind of wood, right? It wasn't healthy wood. It was unhealthy wood. It was driftwood. It was useless. It had been kind of hollowed out through the circumstances which it went through, and it was kind of dried up on this beach. And so uh, Joe Stoll is, is reflecting on this and saying, See, that's me. I was the driftwood. I was the one brought up on the beach. I was the one who was worthless. And when God picked up my life and restored it and made it into something beautiful, it had all to do with his grace and nothing to do with me. See, we might reflect on this and say, God's the one who saves. God's the one who restores. He's let his face shine upon us in Christ. And now we see his glory and his goodness. You might be here and you're saying, I don't know, I don't know if I believe any of this stuff. And, and the question before you today is saying, I don't know if I believe in Christianity is what are you going to do amidst the difficulty that you face in your life? Are you going to avoid it? Are you going to minimize it? What about restoration? Who in your life takes the bitter things and makes them sweet? What is there? For those of us who are in Christ, the work we need to do during our trials is, is to seek Jesus' face. You do this thing, and I was thinking about this during a, a two-hour-long lawn mowing session yesterday, right? It was deep thought as I was cutting blades of grass. 
I don't know why I shared that with you. Uh, anyway. But we try to trivialize our difficulties. Every time we complain about our circumstances, it trivializes what God wants to do. Every time we, we complain and we say, we grumble kind of under the weight of what's going on in our life, we say, well, I've got this thing going on, da, 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 da. I'm busy, I've got a, this boss at work, I've got this and that and the other. We trivialize exactly what God wants to do. We make it about just the horizontal elements and we ignore the vertical that God wants to do in us. I wonder if we might bear up underneath those things and say, God has wrought this circumstance. I can see his hand working something. And I've got to learn how to trust his heart in the midst of that difficulty. Came across this quote from Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth, who said, anything that makes me need God is a blessing. Anything that makes me need God is a blessing. It's a reminder that seeing God's glory changes us. 2 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, he says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. How does God change his people? He subjects them to the hardships and difficulties. He makes them thirst for righteousness in Christ. And he gives himself away in abundance. Isn't that the pattern, the economy of our Lord? Let's go to the throne of grace now. Let's ask God to make us people who thirst for Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would train us to look to your son. Lord, with Asaph, we say, restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we might be saved. Let us see the shining face of your son so we might know the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Lord, don't allow these sufferings, these difficulties to go unused. We know that you accomplish all things according to your plan and purpose. We trust in your good and righteous hand in our midst. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.